Are arcades and alcohol the future? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. We're on the Oregon Trail. Free steamed scrolls. Arcade bars are on the rise. And retro recordings. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Okay, Chris, another week, another This Week in Retro. We are on episode 74, which is just incredible. Uh, slowly wow. sliding our way up to 100. We're going to have to think of something cool. special to do when we get there. Um, eat cake. Eat cake, fine. It's agreed. <laughs> <laughs> we'll eat cake for 100. Um, Fantastic. We had a good chat this week because I put out uh, a, a video about light guns on the Amiga, currently shown to my patrons, mm. but it will be public this week. And... You are one of the few people who have experience that I know of with light guns and Amigas. Is that right? Yes, I thoroughly enjoyed that video, Neil. And uh, I mean, obviously, I enjoy a lot of videos, but some of them are about the period and, and other machines that maybe I didn't have exposure to. But I mean, this is quite a rare niche. Not only was it a light gun on the Amiga, but it was the exact light gun that I had, which was the Trojan light phaser. So that was a real trip down memory lane. I have to ask you, though, Neil, obviously, I don't want to talk too much about the video because Guys, go and watch it because it was fantastic. But did it have my one, and I bought it brand new back in the day, but it had a very distinctive squeak, part of the build yes. quality, I think, yes. to the trigger. Yeah, so yes, the trigger, good. I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I should have probably mentioned it in the video. The trigger wasn't great. Um, the gun yeah. was accurate, and you'll find most light guns from that period with CRTs are very accurate and very usable. Yeah. But the yeah. trigger had a, a, a little squeak to it, and Fantastic. you did get fatigued pretty quickly using that trigger. Yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I loved it. And and one of the packing games, a skeet shoot game, I, me and my brother would play that, obviously trying to beat each other's scores for hours. And so all we had was those packing games and one of the games which you showed, which was Space Gun, which is probably the best game, especially if you're an Aliens fan, which yeah. we were, um, yeah. you know, not officially licensed for the franchise, but it's as good as. And... That just works really well because, well, in my opinion, it's a game that happened to support the gun rather than being created specifically for it, if that makes sense. And yes. so it's just, it remained a really enjoyable game. Even if one of you was playing on mouse, that was still playable and the other person was playing via light gun. Yeah, it was one of the few third-party titles that came out that supported the Trojan light gun. For anyone who hasn't seen the mm. video, there were two games that were bundled, Skeet Shoot and oh, what was the other one? That was it. There was one. Other uh, there was, was some bundled. weird space shooter. I can't even remember what it's called. Yeah, I can't remember now. Yeah, but Skeet Shoot. It, the first thing you see when it loads up is a logo that says "Programmed in Amos," and your immediate reaction <laughs> when you see that is, "Oh, it's gonna be a bit public domain-y. It's not gonna be great." But actually, it's probably one of the best Amos-written games I've ever played. It's just it does mm. what it does. It's simple, but it does what it does very well. Um, so I was really mm. impressed with that. Uh, Space Gun was a great game. I'd, I wish I'd known this about you before I made the video because I would have liked to have put <laughs> you in to talk about your memories. Can you remember oh, where you got yeah. it from? Oh, well, a shop. Um, <laughs> oh, was, great! I think that's that one of the things. <laughs> yes. No, no, but uh, there were so many. There were so many local independent computer shops. Uh, well, I say so many. There were three in my in my hometown. I think it was the one on the hill, and I'm, I was trying to remember just the other day the name of it, and it's completely gone from my head. Wizard something, maybe Wizard okay. Computing or something. But it was it was between between school and home, one that I regularly popped into. So not my 
normal regular, which was megabytes. I'm pretty sure it was that one on the hill. But yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. So I had it boxed. I had it with the packing games. And I can't remember if I bought Space Gun specifically. And Space Gun I would have picked up from megabytes. I can't remember if I bought it specifically because it supported the light phase or, or if I just discovered after purchase. I can't remember which way around it was. But it was, yeah, we played that more than anything else. It was, yeah. it was fantastic. And the yeah. other, the other big general news if you like this week before we go into our news stories proper is brace yourself i think we've spoken about it before neighbors is coming oh. to an end and yes and <laughs> scott and charlene are coming back for the final episode jason donovan carly minogue coming back now i've got to ask you this as a brit that's moved to australia have you made the pilgrimage <laughs> to ramsey street no a that's right <laughs> over the other side that's so that's it's right over the other side so seriously to get distances into people's heads that's like me asking you neil have you made the pilgrimage to moscow because oh, okay. <laughs> that's the distance <laughs> yeah, that's literally the distance so it's a bit of an undertaking not to say i haven't been over east but no i have not found ramsey street or any of the locations in neighbors or any of the locations in home and away before you ask although you know if there was some kind of pilgrimage to Demi, uh, Danny Minogue, <laughs> maybe, maybe I would make that. <laughs> but um, oh, no, no, haven't been to any of those places. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever played the Neighbours game on the Amiga? No. Okay. On. <laughs> I'm going to set you okay, a challenge. Just this to week. dispel the myth as well. Okay. And this is probably why it's coming to an end. Should I say this? Yes, I probably should. Nobody over here watches. <laughs> <laughs> nobody talks about neighbors probably back in the day when they were new yes it would have been popular and i remember back in the day you know we were like on a six-month lag in the uk weren't we you know so if you knew somebody in australia that would be the topic of conversation of what's happening in neighbors and then you could boast to your friends that you could predict that the future need, yeah and yeah. yeah yeah but no nobody nobody watches it which yeah. is why sadly it is, I must admit, it's, yeah, it's been about 25 years since I last watched it. I must admit, it, it yeah. was an after-school <laughs> thing, not a, not a thing I did as a grown-up watching that. Yeah. But you must you must try the Neighbours Amiga game just to appreciate how bad it is. <laughs> it is one of the worst games ever made. There's no relation I'll to anything that really right now. happens in it. Yeah, fire <laughs> it up. And um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, give us your feedback next week. That's your, that's your challenge for the week. All right, right. that's my homework. I, that's done. Enough yeah. of this nonsense. Should we get into our first story? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, our first story, Chris. If I were to say the Oregon Trail to you, what would be your first response? You have died of dysentery. Of course, of course. I think that would be 90% of retro gamers' responses if, if I said that to them. It is perhaps the oldest video game to have become a meme, universally known by us retro gamers. Whether the game was big in your country or not, you probably know about it. It's a game that did become on other become available on other platforms, but I fondly associate it with the Apple II and probably with kids of a school age, you know, edutainment, especially in the USA. Now, listener Starcade2084 shared a story with us this week on the making of, not the original game, but the 80s remake. Uh, and by that, I probably mean the game that you're thinking of, that version of it. The original Oregon Trail actually dates all the way back to 1971. I didn't realize it was quite that old, over 50 years old now. And it comprised originally of a teletype machine, which was connected remotely over the, uh, the phone lines to a mainframe. And all of your actions would print out on the teletype before you typed in your next command. That would go back to the mainframe and it would spit out the response to you on your teletype, which 
I love the idea of that. I would love to get a working teletype just because it, it sounds like such a tactile experience to, mm. you know, a teletype machine is very much like, um, uh, like a typewriter, you know, big clunky keys, tap, 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 and then a dot matrix spitting out a response. I love that whole process. Nice. Uh, that original version was the creation of student teachers and they wrote it in just 10 days. Uh, originally devised as a dice game by Don Rorich. I think that's how you say, say his name, Roritz. Uh, and he collaborated with a programmer, Bill Heinemann, and uh, another one called Paul Dillenberge. And they were roommates, um, and they got together with some more of their roommates to, to knock this game up in 10 days, having been inspired by that original dice game. Now, the game apparently caused such a stir that queues of students filled the corridors at Carlton College, each wanting to play what for the most of them would be their first ever experience of a computer game. I was going to say video game, but there was no video involved at this point, so a computer game. But it was the later port that most of us remember, the one that actually had graphics on a display. So if you look at the history of the game, there's this huge list of versions that came out for it, many before we get to the subject of today's story. So that's the 1985 version that Starcade submitted the story about. The first Apple II version was just called Oregon. That came out in 1978. And then there were versions ported on the success of that to the C64, the TRS-80, MS-DOS, and other platforms. And it was just a huge, huge seller for the publisher who were called MECC. But when we get to the 1985 version, that reverts to the full original title, the Oregon Trail. And things got quite fancy there with in terms of graphics and features and things that they added to the game. And um, in the article that's submitted, and I recommend you go and have a read of this, it goes into great detail with the developers about the extras that they put in there, how they made it such a success, or should I say built on the original success because it was already a huge success. This game, remember, sold over 65 million copies in its lifetime, which is astonishing. For a game that goes back to 1971, 65 million copies. And the most recent version of it was released in 2021. So, you know, 50 years later, they're still working on this same concept. Now, I have a feeling that our own edutainment experiences, Chris, are going to be quite different to those in the US who had Oregon Trail and enjoyed that. Although I did get to play it on an Apple II back in the day when it was current. I say when it was current. You know, it still is if they made one in 2021. But I did use it back in back in the day on an Apple II with a, an uncle who just happened to work in the US, had an Apple II, and that's the game that he showed me. And I just have this, this probably one of my earliest computing memories ever was seeing Oregon Trail on an Apple II back in the 80s. But Chris, if I was to ask you about edutainment or even just education titles without any entertainment built in, um, what memories do you have? And did Oregon ever feature in them? <laughs> no, Oregon didn't feature, no. Uh, but I'm very familiar with the game, thanks to LGR, funnily enough. And that's the only reason <laughs> I knew that quote <laughs> that we started with. And I think you know, of those 65 million copies, uh, are 60 of those, 60 million of those just LGR buying, <laughs> buying more <laughs> copies of Oregon Trail is quite possible. Um, in fact, I think he recently added some copies to his collection that are actually in wooden boxes um it's a really good video to go and look nice. at um and they really fit the theme you know they look like they're just pallet wood nailed together to to host the game and all the uh the paperwork it's really good but as for ed edutainment titles um i mean my school my my memories of computers in school let's go back to junior school or as i think they refer to it in the us and, and australia is approximately years four to eight we had uh, i think we had a bbc micro as in one 
for the entire school. And we also, I, I do remember this distinctly, we had a ZX Spectrum, but their, their use really was limited to, it was an incentive for finishing your work faster than anybody else in the class, and then you might get a go on the computer if there was enough time. And it was also, the, the ZX Spectrum especially, was set aside for those with learning difficulties such as dyslexia. Um, so my memories of from that period of computers in education were actually just text ventures for those with dyslexia to sort of as an incentive to improve their reading and, and, and writing skills. How, how you can improve, <laughs> if somebody's got issues with reading and spelling, you then give them a dead man's flesh keyboard to learn to type on. I'm not sure that was actually <laughs> helping, but anyway. Um, but one, and it was because of the screenshots, very distinctive graphical images, that, and I've, I've had to look it up to match them up, and the title would have been Granny's Garden. So there's there's a couple of screens in that, like there's a big picture of a, a bird. There's one screen where you have to work out which is the magic tree, and you've got a series of of what I would call Christmas trees. Um, and then there's this witch that comes along if you get caught, you know, with this particularly hideous face, I must say. Um, but, you know, in very simple, simple 2D 8-bit graphics. And it, and it was yeah. Granny's Garden. Everyone um, so remembers those, those the images. witch. That witch was scary yes. as hell. <laughs> she was scary as hell, yeah. Learn how to spell and do your maths or this witch is going to get you. That's how we educated kids back then and, and stopped them from getting a good night's sleep um and then fast forward to um secondary school or, or high school depending on where in the world you're from and again we still just have bbc well we have bbc master systems um that's as much as our school had but a room full of them at least it wasn't one um for the entire school and some of the they started filtering through to some of the other areas like technical drawing and design and realization those kind of um gcse topics uh, but all I remember those running were obviously BBC Best Basic to help try and, you know, teach some computer skills. There was a drawing program, which I've actually found it really hard to research because I think it was just called Drawing or Draw. I'm pretty okay. sure we just typed, you know, load draw to load it up. All I remember was it was think paint and then remove most of the features. And that was it. <laughs> so, you know, you could draw a straight line. Yeah. You could draw some boxes and stuff. and But because in technical drawing, which I really enjoyed, I was into doing, you know, um, different elevations and, and uh, also doing isometric drawings and 3D drawings and also perspective, you know, single point and um, dual vanishing point images. I was then starting to, in, in lunch times, rather than go out in the uh, in the yard and get beaten up, I was going into the computer lab and doing extra homework just so I could do it on the computer rather than by hand and present that as part of my project work. Yeah. Um, so that was quite good. And then the other really cool thing we had was the, and again, this was on the BBC Master System, but a Lego program. So it basically allowed you to write a series of commands to control Lego motors via an interface on the back of the BBC. And, you know, uh, again, me and a friend just sort of did some extracurricular work to make a robot hand that picked up a Coke can and dropped it in a bin. It, it couldn't detect the Coke can. It couldn't detect right. the bin. <laughs> we just had to get the commands to stop in exactly the right space. And it looked impressive when we showed it to some kids from a younger year. So Under yeah, controlled those are conditions. My yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. So long as the can was in exactly the right spot, it would pick it up. <laughs> what about yourself? Yeah, the, the whole draw thing with the BBC rings a bell. And I think there was a very simple paint program, as you described, but also I think draw was a command in the basic command set. So you could just turn the machine on 
and type draw and then some coordinates mm. and it would draw a line yeah. from point A to point B and you could change the color. So within seconds as a kid, you were into learning basic programming to get some, mm. you know, an immediate response, um, a visually pleasing response on the screen, or at least by 1984 standards. Um, I'm not sure if that would impress kids today. But anyway, um, if we're talking about Oregon Trail specifically, that did not feature at all in any of my school computers, any of my edutainment. It's something I came across in later life and went, oh, so that's what they were doing over in that part of the world. They were playing that. But that's not to say the programs that we were running weren't influenced by that. There were very obvious influences looking back now in terms of games that involved a little bit of resource management, involved moving across the country, involved, I don't know, looking for food, things like that. Um, or just elements of it in all of the edutainment titles that we used to run. We had a lot of them with the BBC Micro in our schools. I was a little bit luckier in that I had one in one BBC Micro per year, not per school. So we had one in in every year that we could go on. And um, yeah, it was it was a bit of a treat to use it sometimes. Um, I was allowed to use it at, at lunchtime, like you, sometimes instead of going out. Even on a sunny day, I was allowed to stay inside and play on the computer with my friend JP. And uh, we had a great time. Um, there is an edutainment title that just came, seemed to pop up again and again and again on 8 and 16-bit micros. And that was one called Fun School. Do you remember that? It seemed to be oh, everywhere. I do remember seeing that around. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And there were loads of versions yeah. of it. Um, and they were all numbered, weren't they? Yeah, big numbers. They were all numbered. I remember like a, a frog. A frog or a teddy bear <laughs> or whatever on the front. Yeah. And you would see this mm. everywhere except for in school. I, and fun school yes. never actually came to school. <laughs> it was like your home edutainment title that seemed to be everywhere. Um, but in yeah. school, it was, you know, a lot of BBC micro programs, Mallory Manor, um, Granny's Garden, um, Geordie Racer, which was all about racing pigeons. I think I've talked about that on the show before. Loads of them, which had all of these Oregon Trail type elements to them. Probably the single edutainment title that I actually got the most out of was probably Mavis Beacon, the typing tutor. I couldn't remember, I couldn't tell you which version it was, but it was the one where um, you had bugs that hit the windscreen if you typed the wrong ah. letter. You were in a car, you were typing yes. away and sort of splat on the windscreen. And I actually did, uh, you know, I, I'm not technically a touch typist. I can type pretty quick, but the speed in, in which I typed it, um, was certainly improved by that. Uh, it was on my Amiga at the time that I was running that. And I would um, I would get to the point where I would, I would shut my eyes. Um, after I got used to Mavis Beacon, my own sort of typing test was to shut my eyes and just type into a terminal or notepad or whatever and see if I typed what I wanted to type. And eventually I got there, hmm. which um, which was uh, it felt really satisfying. And Mavis Beacon helped me with that. Thanks, Mavis. I know you're not a real person and you don't actually exist, but thanks anyway. <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> Or Mavis Bacon, as we used to call her. Um, yeah. But yeah, on the whole, edutainment titles, I'm going to stick my neck out and say they were pretty lame. And Oregon <laughs> Trail seems to be the exception to that rule that many people remember fondly. Yeah. How, how about you? Did you, ever, did you ever do a bit of Mavis Beacon? I did indeed. Yeah. Did. Funny enough, the, the, the place I came across Mavis Beacon was in college. So like a vocational education scenario. Um, and... 
uh, it was on the PC, so it was the PC version. So whether it was a difference in graphics or whether I just remembered it wrong, but I remember wet leaves hitting the windscreen. So maybe it, it might have been a different in, uh, version. I don't know. But same same principle. You, the faster you type, the faster you drive. And if you hit a wrong character, you get a smudge on the windscreen. And yeah. So it was quite a good way of learning to type. I can't say it taught me to type. I think what taught me to type was late night MIRC, but I don't want to talk about that period of my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it was, funnily enough, it was one of those things where suddenly one day you realise your touch typing and you know yeah. it's not like a conscious thing so yeah it was quite quite interesting but yeah mavis was good fun uh, but funnily enough you know talking about technology and education a, a more recent part of my career and i won't talk too much about it but i was a, basically a mentor um both statewide and also nationally um for use of technology and education for vocational education over here in australia that was what i did um uh, so not so much in terms of education once you get to vocational education you're dealing with adults so it was more what i was involved with was teaching lecturers how to use technology to reach their students or to upload materials to make them look presentable to you know comply with copyright um that kind of thing but we did try and you know try and get them to think about making it engaging <laughs> which is you know it's not easy for them and it's not easy for the students either but also in, uh, in terms of using technology similar to what we're using right now in terms of you know putting together a, a, a production like this but live video feeds live audio to actually engage with remote students you know not just getting them to go away and read stuff online but actually interact live either one-on-one -on -one or in a class so that was quite cool and one of the things that we talked about and i, ha I worked with a colleague called a vet who was especially good she's an excellent excellent educator and one of the workshops that we presented together was on what we call gamification which was basically trying to apply whether it, it was online learning or face-to-face -face learning trying to apply the principles that make gaining uh, gaming sorry interactive and fun and engaging and trying to apply them to learning material and even assessment material so it was a really interesting space to work in for a while yeah that, that must be a difficult thing but you know if you can if you can get it right then it must be very satisfying have you ever yeah. thought about just making a video about those experiences working in that field because i've often thought about all the different jobs i've done in it over the years and uh, mm -hmm. maybe just turning the camera on and just talking about it not from a position of saying yeah hey i was the best in my field at this just hey i was one of the guys that that did this these are the goods the bads you know the things i did well the things that i was probably a bit lazy on and didn't do so well um you, you know interesting experiences and just talking about it and and that sounds like yeah a topic i'd like to hear about if you've ever thought about doing that one day one day i definitely will i have to be careful because even though i'm not in that role i do work for the same department oh, so okay. things like conflict okay. of interest come into play and all that kind of stuff <laughs> so but one day my stories will be told in the right way in the right yeah <laughs> through the right mechanism yeah it's good it's it's a really interesting area to be in Good. Yep. Good. Well, um, on the subject of the Oregon Trail, if you'd like to read up on the history of the team that made that 1985 version, um, check out their thoughts on it and, and their experiences. Have a look at the link that is in the show notes or the link that was posted on Reddit. Um, you can see all of the stories that are submitted at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. And you can submit your own stories for us to possibly talk about in future shows. Have a read and let us know your thoughts in the comments. Um, 
I've kind of set myself up here again, Neil. Um, I think, and look, I, it's my fault. I chose this story, uh, which was actually shared on the subreddit by Pajeko6502. He seems to be writing the entire show these days. <laughs> but anyway, they're, they're all, <laughs> Oz Retrocomp's got on holiday and Pajeko6502 is now our pr- uh, primary script writer. But anyway, <laughs> um, what, when I say I've set myself up, the games I'm about to talk about, I'm pretty sure, uh, once again, are games I've not played. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to need more clues than that as to what game that might be, because it's a it's a big old list. Maybe you should just submit a, <laughs> submit a list of the games you have played, Chris, just so we can get it One... all out in the open and be nice and clear. Here are the five games I've played. <laughs> oh, fine. I was going to say one day we'll just do just one. Episode Lotus will be two. Games Lotus three. Chris has played, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just sit here and I'll go by system. Philips G seven thousand, Acorn Electron, Spectrum Plus. Anyway, right. Okay, let's get it. <laughs> let's get into. So, God, what it's game good. is this? Tell us about it. Look, well, look. There, there's a good reason why I've done this to myself because basically it gives me a springboard into games I have actually played. Some of them. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So anyway, the link shared is actually to a story on PC Gamer, and I must say it's good to see them still going. Uh, and the story is by Christopher Livingston. And Chris details how on May the 11th, uh, Bethesda, the, the Bethesda launcher, sorry, will actually be no more. And to be honest, I didn't know it was ever a thing. I've not, not heard of it. No, I must have used it at some point, but it doesn't stand out as being something in my start menu. No. No, that's probably why it's going away, I think. <laughs> um, but as a result, uh, some of the titles from the, the Bethesda library are once again ending up in the Steam library, which is great. Um, and again, I can't say I noticed that they were missing. Um, but anyway, <laughs> as part of that, some of these games are going up for free. And that's a price that interests me. Um, so the story on PC Gamer is titled "Some of the Bethesda Classics." Uh, sorry, some of the Bethesda Classic Elder Scrolls RPGs are now free on Steam, and the games listed that are going up for free include the Elder Scrolls Arena, the Elder Scrolls II Daggerfall, Wolfenstein Enemy Territory, and for cheap, well, five quid anyway. You can also grab the Elder Scrolls Adventures Redguard and an Elder Scrolls Legend Battle Spire. Um, and it doesn't end there. Because quite often, and we've seen this quite a lot, when, when old titles hit Steam, all the modding and mapping tools get stripped out as if they see it as some kind of, you know, I don't know, challenge to, to people buying their DLC. Uh, they don't mm. want people making their own maps and stuff. Duke Nukem World Tour springs to mind as a, as a key example of that. But not here, not with these. So mod tools for Fallout 4 and Skyrim Special Edition are also available on the Steam library. So that's great. So let's stick with the title games for now, Neil. I know these aren't point and click as adventures as such, um, but were El- were the Elder Scrolls titles uh, something that you were into? Uh, were you up to, in- uh, you know, up to and including Skyrim, let's say? Yeah, yeah. Well, yes and no. First of all, before we get to Elder Scrolls, a game that Bethesda... It's quite a difficult word to say, isn't it, quickly? Bethesda. It is. Yes, I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> um, uh, a game that they published that I absolutely loved was 1996's Terminator Skynet. Did you ever play that one? Oh. That's like a FPS game. Um, set was in that the, Terminator the first world. Terminator FPS game? 
Because I certainly um, remember playing one. I remember having to follow a truck into the compound. That was like the opening of yeah, the one I played anyway. May well have been the first FPS. I mean, obviously, there were the 8 and 16-bit mm. versions of Terminator 2, um, which were pretty awful, and Terminator Arcade, which was the on-rails one with the gun. Yeah. That was quite no, fun. I'm thinking PC era. I'm thinking but PC, PC era. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if it, Probably mm. was the first, 1996. Let's let's say yes. Mm. Um, let's say it with some authority <laughs> so people believe us. Yeah, that was the first, Chris. That was absolutely the first. That was the one. But, oh, good, um, I played it then, Neil. Yes. <laughs> and it was <laughs> it was really gritty, really nice, uh, you know, setting that um in that terminator in that in that future world within within the war period the future war and it just carried mm. with it all of the suspense of being hunted down by terminators and i love that game and i haven't checked but i'm assuming that's probably on steam um i'll have to have a mm. little look but I, if we go back to the elder scrolls which is what you specifically asked about the first i saw of that series was my housemate playing morrowind back in 2002 mm. And in that particular period, that was the decline of my time playing Ultima online. And I was still smarting from the failure of Ultima Ascension, which was the, the single player game. And I had kind of a, an RPG vacuum in my life that needed to be filled. But I was fighting. I was kicking back and pushing hard against that because I know what a time sink, you know, single player, let alone multiplayer online RPG games are on my life. So I was pushing mm. back against that and I didn't want to get stuck into another one. I was a, I was, you know, a serious working man at this point with responsibilities. <laughs> I couldn't be, you know, running around as a, an elf or something in, in dungeons. So um, it was probably Oblivion where I cracked that finally got me into it. So I saw another friend playing Oblivion on um, that came to the Xbox 360, which was seriously impressive to see that kind of game in 3D looking as glorious as it did with the the depth of gameplay in it that it did on a console i was really impressed and um i don't did i go out and get that one yes i did yeah i got that and i played it on my pc and i laughed at him because my frame rate was better as, as impressed as i was with his <laughs> xbox 360 i was like yeah well come and look at this higher resolution smoother frame rate and uh modding got it all here um and I played it to completion, like all the way through the main quest, the side quest, everything. Loved everything about that game. And then I did exactly the same with Skyrim. Couldn't wait to get a hold of that and play through that. Didn't get so much into the modding side of Skyrim. I just kind of felt that I'd completed it and I was I was able to move on from that one, which was quite nice. I didn't haven't gone back to play Skyrim VR at any point. I would like to give that a go. But um the reason I like these games in part was because the graphics were absolutely stunning, you know, seriously cutting edge graphics that took advantage of your uh, your graphics cards that you, you just spent a huge amount of money on. So it was nice to see them working as well as having a good in-depth game and a world that you could get lost in. And I found them to be accessible, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a good RPG, you have to feel like you're totally in control of the decisions that you're making and and that if you make intelligent decisions or what you perceive to be intelligent decisions given the options that are in front of you and the tools that you've got at your disposal you you want to be rewarded for it you want to get that i guess that dopamine rush of being rewarded for figuring something out and not being constantly punished because you don't fully understand the many layers of mechanics for I don't know, the magic system or the crafting system or whatever it is. You don't quite know how to protect yourself properly from battle because you don't understand all the stats and the, the, you know, the mechanics behind it all. That's never fun for anyone um, unless, you know, you've got the time to put hours and hours into figuring all this out. So I actually found the level of accessibility for me personally to be 
you know, on that on that fine line, perfectly balanced. And I thought that was great. It didn't feel like you were just running around like a madman in Grand Theft Auto. It didn't feel like you needed to be a, a grandmaster chess a chess player, a chess player. That's a different game altogether. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, <laughs> it had that balance. It had that balance, which I really liked. And uh, perhaps, perhaps for others, that was just leaning a bit more towards casual RPG. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me, Chris, do you feel like that was a, hmm. a casual RPG, a hardcore RPG, or do you think it had the balance? For me, it did have the right balance. Yeah, no, I think Skyrim especially, you're right. It, it doesn't feel like an RPG. Um, I am slightly distracted because I'm wondering if there's a VR game that is, um, you know, a chess player. <laughs> a chess Kasparov's chest grandmaster <laughs> i'm sure there's got to be one anyway let's leave that for a, another episode or maybe never to be spoken of again um but yeah skyrim um we got skyrim on the xbox i've never played the pc version but it, it came as a packing title when i bought my my boys what was essentially our second xbox um at via a download code it was part of the part of the you know packing games and they loved it and they got really into it and I've had a go at it. I've played, you know, a fair bit of Skyrim, but not not too much. I haven't, you know, completed it. You know, I'll, I'll confess to that. But it doesn't feel like an RPG to me because it, it just feels like a first-person game that happens to have a sort of medieval setting, if that makes sense, and a sort of, you know, magic fantasy um, slant to it. So mm-hmm. it's certainly something I could get into. And the only reason I haven't put much time into it is simply that word, time. You know, you do have to put a lot of time investment into it. And then we got it again on the PS4 and again when um, we got our PSVR. Again, it was a packing title via a download code. And so I had to give that a go, having played through some of the opening levels and opening progression. So on the Xbox 360 and again on the PS4, I really enjoyed watching my boys play it and seeing their progression, the paths they'd chosen, how they knew whether or not they were ready to fight a drag, certain dragon and those kind of things. Um. So when we got it for the PSVR, I, I had to have a go because I thought, well, if I'm going to play it, I'm actually, I'm not having to replay the whole game. So I'd rather play the whole thing in PSVR because I, I love PSVR and it is very immersive. But let's be honest here. This is a game where it's not designed for PSVR. They've tacked it on. Hmm. That's the reality. It's not been done badly. And a lot of games do that well. Wipeout springs to mind. Um, but... The opening scene when you're on the cart and you're chatting to, you know, the guy opposite you, that's fine because there's a a logical frame of reference in the cart and the people around you. You're sitting down or even if you're standing up in your room, you're kind of static even though the cart is moving. That's not a problem. Then you go through the motions of going on the chopping block. Spoilers for anybody that hasn't played Skyrim up to this point in 2022. But anyway, um, and then and then you get into the bit where the dragon attacks the town and you need to start running through the village and in psvr here comes comes the motion sickness am i right (laughs) oh yes and i do very well in ps i can play squadrons i can play wipeout with all the comfort settings turned off i can play what's the other one battle zone any of those games fast paced it doesn't matter what's because most of them build in a fixed frame of reference that makes logical sense to your senses this and any game so if you play doom 3 if you play Doom VFR, if you start what I call sliding, because that's essentially what you're doing. In the game, you're moving forward, but in real life, you're standing still. 
I don't care who you are. Your stomach is going to do somersaults and it's not yeah. going to be a pleasant experience. So unfortunately, I haven't made much progress in that either. It gets me but it is time. just nice. Yeah, yeah. It gets, it's, it's fantastic time. to just sit in that. In, you know, I think if you progress in, in Skyrim, you do then get the teleport. And I wasn't a fan when VR first came out and everybody's doing teleporting around the place. I thought, well, that's not how these games are meant to be played. Trust me, if you're wearing a helmet and there's a teleport function, you use that because that yeah. actually works. That fixes the motion sickness. So anyway, what, moving like, on sorry, from that. Sorry, you know, no, I'm, I'm interested yeah. to know about this. So what's it like, for example, if you get on a horse? Does that make it easier for you, riding a horse around in Skyrim? Or would in Sky- that... <laughs> I didn't get that far. You didn't get that far. <laughs> I didn't get okay. that far. Not in the VR version, no. Um, it's like you need it a might. quad it bike. Pro- it probably something. would. It probably would. <laughs> if I've got the head of the horse in front of me, then that would start to make sense. It yeah. literally is all about having that. And that's where there's a very special craft, I think, to a good VR game in building in a comfort that isn't, you know, an overwhelming comfort setting, but just something that makes sense to your senses so that you do have what I call a fixed frame of reference. And that takes, that's all it takes to take away the the motion sickness. Flight simulators make sense because you're sitting in a cockpit anyway. Yeah. But um, looking at these early Skyrim games that are available for free, some of them uh, are actually what I would call dungeon crawlers, very similar to games that I have a very uh, soft spot for and very fond memories of, like Eye of the Beholder on the Atari ST. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first dungeon crawlers I was ever introduced to back in the day. My friend Lee had it on his ST, and then again when he upgraded to an Amiga. Did I say upgrade from an ST to an Amiga? Sorry about that. Um, but that, that's what he did. And then th- there's a reason why I didn't have any of the Dungeons and Dragons games, all to do with my upbringing that I'm not going to go into. But I, I wasn't allowed them. <laughs> it's the reality of it. Were you um, in a cult? I was. Were you part of a cult? I was in a cult. No, it wasn't a cult. But anyway, look. But I was, it, it, my, my, my parents had an aversion to anything that involved, you know, magic and all of that kind of stuff. But I was allowed captive, which is, at the end of the day, it's the same thing. It's just that you replace magic and swords and potions with guns and missiles and rockets. And it's it's far more healthy to be, you know, blowing things to bits with weapons that actually exist than pretending to use <laughs> magic spells. Um, but yeah, so Captive is one I have very fond memories of in terms of dungeon crawlers, which is it's the same thing. It's just a futuristic setting yeah. rather than a medieval setting. So yeah, definitely like that. So the other one that's been listed there, and I am going to sort of skate ahead because we've talked about this, I think, for, for far too long, but Wolfenstein, um, what the, what's on offer there in terms of enemy territory is just essentially the one of the multiplayer components of Return to Castle Wolfenstein, which is a game I absolutely adore. If you say the word Wolfenstein, that's actually where my mind goes. And what I like about it is it's... Um, it starts off feeling like a decent World War II first-person shooter, and then you get to what's called the catacombs, and from there it just moves into the whole, you know, Nazi experimentation into super soldiers and the occult and all of that kind of stuff. And um, it, it it slides somewhere in between Medal of Honor and Doom, and I just think that's fantastic. Nice. So, what about you, Neil? Um, I'm going to play my Chris card here. I'm going to lay it on the table and say I haven't played Return to Castle Wolfenstein or Enemy Territory, at least in in any great length. I'm pretty sure I fired one of them up once to see how my graphics card of the day worked on it. But um, I was at a period in my life at this point where I was totally fatigued with first-person shooters. Absolutely had enough of them. And I probably still am Mm. to a degree, you know, Mm. 
when you consider when Doom came out and and the progression of FPS, I'm not saying there haven't been good FPS games. There have been some fantastic ones, some that I've been completely hooked on. Um, the Battlefield series, for example, absolutely love that. Mm. Uh, Call of yeah, Duty, that, um, I used to play for hours the multiplayer option with the with the zombies, the zombie hordes. You yes. just have to fight them back. Yes. Loved that. Loved that on a PlayStation absolutely. 3. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I wasn't massively into to this one. Uh, because of that kind of FPS fatigue. And I think these days, when an FPS comes out, it has to have something really extra special for me to really give it my, the time of day. But uh, is it Enemy Territory, did you say, is the, the multiplayer one yeah. of those those ones? Yeah, well, the ulti- multiplayer element that they're basically putting It's got that, yeah. yeah. Um, so for me, if, if you're throwing in multiplayer in FPS games, if it's fun enough, then the mm. game isn't really that important to me because there's this crossover where if you have enough friends that are interested in it, this multiplayer experience becomes a social experience and you're just having a bit of fun chatting on the voice chat. Um, and that becomes the reason to go there rather than the game itself. So I would be interested in trying this just to see if that's another place to hang out and chat and occasionally blow each other's heads off in between the chat, which is always a fun thing to do. That's okay in my book. Yeah, that's cool. It always worries me when they do release like the multiplayer elements of an old game, because how does it work? I assume there's some kind of server that's still operational for for that to even be a thing worth putting up on Steam. But then, who's playing it? That that, that becomes the problem. <laughs> Is anybody actually playing? Because if nobody's playing, it, it, the whole thing falls down. What, Return to Castle Wolfenstein is a fantastic story. So look, just like you rib me for not playing enough point to click adventures. Seriously, you're missing out on a good one with Return to Castle Wolfenstein. It's fantastic. So. Anyway, um, I, I think I'm definitely going to add these to my library. I mean, they're free, so why not? But I think I'd genuinely like to give some of the early ones a play just to have a look because um, my parents can't stop me anymore. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, because, uh, yeah, I do love that sort of style of 80s slash 90s dungeon crawler. So I think I'd enjoy these. So I do thank Bajaco, but also Chris from PC Gamer for making us aware of these bargains. And thanks Steam and Bethesda for making them available. And look out for Chestmaster 3000 coming soon. VR. (laughs) (laughs) I chose this next story, Chris, which was submitted by our good friend Paul, a.k.a. Hermski. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I chose it this week because it talks about an arcade bar that I've actually visited and their plans to expand on the uh, the concept. So the bar in question is called NQ64. It's based in Manchester, which is quite away from me up north, but I happened to be in the area once. So I, I took a look at it. And the new one that they're setting up is um, on a temporary trial, by the looks of it, in London, in a basement, in a location that's not on, but is very close to Oxford Street. So this place is going to be busy really busy i'm sure um if you're not aware oxford street is a main shopping street in london it's where everyone goes to you know when you go to london you go to oxford street for your shopping um so as i said i've been to the manchester version of this bar and i'll describe the experience to you uh, when i went there so it was a saturday night just like this one that they're proposing in london it is bang in the in the center of the city so busiest day in the busiest part of manchester it's always going to be busy in there. So when I went in there, I would describe this not as an arcade bar, but probably as a bar arcade, (laughs) at least on a busy Saturday. And I say that because my objective in going there was not to have a beer. It was to um, 
well it was it was to have a beer but primarily it was to chat with friends and it was to play a lot of games on original hardware that that's what's promised i'm gonna sound like a proper old man now did i get a beer yes i did could i talk to my friends no it was very loud down there chris it was very loud down oh, there no. in this little basement so it wasn't yeah. great for just having a chat and socializing did i enjoy playing games no i didn't get to play on a single game Aww. not a single arcade game and the reason being that the place was so busy that a lot of the machines weren't even being played they were just rammed the place was just rammed with people drinking around the machines trying to find a spot to just lean against rest their bottle on a control panel it, it was impossible it was impossible so i had a drink i left i went and found somewhere else i think i went on to a steakhouse and had a nice dinner instead Aww. but i want to make it clear that that is me one man's experience on one night one busy saturday night i think if i went there at 3 p.m on a wednesday i would have a whole different experience a well of a time probably get to play on lots of games easily available drinks and snacks and that would be fine i would have a much better experience so please don't take that one description of that one busy saturday night as a reason not to go there i'd still encourage you to check it out but it does raise an interesting conversation point, which is where is the balance to be had? Do you prefer a destination that's got a bar that happens to have games, which is what this place felt like on that Saturday night? Or would you rather that the games were front and center with the emphasis being put on using the machines, enjoying them with a few refreshments on the side, but actually gaming and making sure that you can game being the center of the experience? Now, I would imagine that if this bar was here to chip in right now, they would probably claim that they are the latter. But if that's the case, you don't need to be in a city centre. A crowd will make the trip anywhere to visit these places. This is now, you know, an arcade is not a mainstream thing. It's a specialist thing that a specialist audience wants to go to, and they will make the trip to go there. Just like a hardcore cyclist will go out of town and to somewhere far away to go to a cycle shop to get what they want. We, we will do that. We will do that for you. We will go to these places. So you could make it in the middle of nowhere. And I guess an example of that is, is right here in the cave. You know, people come from far and wide to come and visit this place. So by positioning these places in the heart of Manchester or London, you are specifically trying to appeal to passing trade, to a mainstream crowd uh, and... I want to point out I'm not using the word mainstream as a dirty word here. It's not, I'm not saying it as it, from the context, context of being a gaming snob or anything like that. You're just putting yourself in a, in a very busy place for the reason that it's busy when I don't think it really needs to be there. Um, and in the article that's, that's posted by Paul, it's described as in quotes, a Soho bar with games consoles. So where is the balance to be found? Is there a danger of, slipping into gatekeeping devices that were always meant to be in basically an abusive environment or are these things getting to an age where they should be treated more as museum pieces i guess what i'm asking is do arcades need retirement homes that aren't bars or bars that um put them front and center and and look after them a bit more and make sure that you get the experience even on a busy day when you go there to experience them Where, where's that balance to be found chris no, that's a very good question, Neil. Um, and it kind of makes me think back to where we found arcades back in the day. You know, what was the context? So you had arcades, which were completely full of arcade games and pinball machines and gambling machines and that kind of thing. And you would go there to play games and seldom did they have drink. In fact, none of the ones that I knew had drink. No, they had a guy in a booth that, that gave you change. I don't 
remember even a vending machine being in most of the ones I went to. Nothing. No, exactly. Yeah. So there were no snacks. There were no drink. You were there to pump coins <laughs> into those things yeah. to make them. Why would they distract you with anything else? And the other place you would find them is in pubs, but that was always as a, a sort of an afterthought. You know, somebody who owns an arcade machine would have, as we now understand, said to the you know landlord, "I want to put a machine here so that I can make some money from your floor space," and off you go. Um, so, so it wasn't the reason to go to a pub. You didn't go to the pub to play Mortal Kombat, for it, for, for example. But more, uh, the pub was where I first played Mortal Kombat because yeah. it happened to be there. I went there for a drink and to catch up with mates. So the two things are distinctly different. Um, so do they belong in um, in a museum or an exhibition space like your own? You know, hopefully in a, a hands-on environment like like the one you've set up. I think maybe that is part of the answer. And maybe not that these things are wrong, and I'll go into in a minute. We, we do have examples of this right here in Perth, and quite a few actually. Um, but maybe if you're talking about an actual environment where you're going to have a drink and you're going to to socialize maybe what belongs better there is recreations of those things you know through mame or through you know pies or whatever you could easily set them up and then who cares if drink gets spilled on them they get abused and and what have you but surely the originals the original hardware belong in some kind of organization or company that is at least going to you know protect them in some way and have playing them as the main uh, reason for going to that establishment rather than an afterthought so i don't it, it is a careful it? balance I mean, on the flip yeah. side you mentioned the cave there <clears throat> i don't serve mm. alcohol because i don't have a license mm. to serve alcohol here but i'm fully aware that the demographic that comes here uh, a lot of them would love an ale would love a real ale um and mm. i would i would want to encourage that to be kept away from the machines but i understand that there's a crossover there there's, there's a, an age and a type of person who wants to experience the old games of their childhood and actually wouldn't mind a, a nice room temperature ale while they're doing it. Uh, sorry, Neil. Um, I was just cancelling my flight. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I can, I no can make sure I've got a cold one for you. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay. Cause, yeah. isn't it? It's cause. Okay, I'll, I, have to, I have to go in. I'll rebook you in a second. That's all fine. Um, yeah, no, it, it is a hard balance. So, But like I said, we do have them in Perth. So in Perth, I mean, which is a city's go, it's not the biggest but uh, we've got a place called the Palace Arcade. And when I say a place, it's pretty much become a franchise in its own right now. So they've got a location um, in a place called North Northbridge, which is central Perth, Victoria Park, which is central Perth, and Fremantle, which is one of the main sort of social strips um, slightly south of Perth. And they are exactly what you're describing. They are sort of a, a pub slash bar that puts on good quality food and they have original games, original pinball machines, and, and that's what it's about. Um, and then you've got another place, which I discovered only today via just doing some research, called Lucky and Son Games, and they're in Forest Chase. That's in the centre of Perth, but that's a bit of a weird one, and I don't understand that. Not to say it's not a great place to go. I haven't looked at it myself, but they seem to be, again, food and drink, including alcohol, but the games they seem to have on offer are, are more of the modern games so like this the big led version of space invaders that i've been seeing around the place and yeah. the um, nba hoops uh, and those kind of sort of what i would call carnival games if i can yeah, put it that without, yeah. without insulting them yeah yeah so that's what they're about um and then you've also got this place called so all of the above sort of their bars and eateries that include the sort of arcade element in, within them 
And then you've got a place called the Nostalgia Box in Aberdeen Street in Perth. And they are, I would say, they're the closest thing we've got to the cave, actually, Neil. So they're about classic arcade games, original hardware, lots of consoles. Um, but rather than, I, I'm pretty sure there's no alcohol there. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the case because they're a place that is essentially the consoles and the gaming comes first. And you can you can venue hire the entire place. You can organize parties, or they put on their own social events that you can book into and come along to. And that's how they run. But it's it's definitely a different focus. The focus isn't on the eating and the drinking and the socializing. The focus is the gaming. So that it's definitely made that differentiation. Have I visited any of these many places? I've visited Neil. Uh, listed, sorry, Neil. Not a well, single one. <laughs> there, has, there has been a pandemic on. Yes, and that's why. Uh, partially the pandemic, um, but also, and, and that is a bit of a weak excuse over here because we, we were incredibly lucky with how it was dealt with over here. Um, but also, and this comes into this discussion quite legitimately, I've got pubs close to home that I can walk to. So if I want to go and drink and socialize, I'm sorry, but I'm going to favor those rather than one in the city, much as I want to go and play the arcade games and stuff. It's that same dilemma. Am I going there to play the arcade games? Will I even be able to get to them? Or do I actually want to have a drink? Well, if I want to have a drink, then I don't want to be driving. So I'm going to go yeah. to the pubs yeah. and the bars closer to my house. So yeah, it's a hard yeah, one. And I, I think you've described two types of venues there. Um, You've probably got the ones which are looking long-term, like the nostalgia box that you've described. They're probably thinking, we want to make this a 10, 20-year venture. We want to keep this going on and on and build up our collection and preserve our collection. And then you've got the bars that are probably thinking, well, trends come and go and, and change. You've only got to look at any bar or, or nightclub that you've ever been to that's you know been wildly popular at one point and then just been dead and closed down and changed again and be re been rethemed. I think for some of them, the whole retro gaming theme is just just for them that it's just a theme, and they're, they're, mm -hmm. they they may even have a short term business plan to say, okay, we'll do this for five years until that trend moves on and we'll we'll go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if some of them had that. So um, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of these places pan out um for the cave it's certainly a long-term venture i would hope um but as i say we don't serve alcohol here um maybe one day maybe one day but but not right now it's more about the machines first and foremost but it's certainly an interesting uh an interesting conversation and i've asked you a few um australia specific questions we've talked about neighbors earlier so i've got to ask you another one now chris would australians give a castle main 4x for anything else <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it in a bar. Same with Foster's. The joke over here with Foster's is is what we export to the rest of the world because it's so terrible. I'm going to get in trouble with some licensing or some company. But anyway, yeah, it's the drip tray drink. You know, the stuff that you empty from the drip tray, you put it in a glass and you call it Foster's or you call it Castle Mine Forex. So, yeah. Um, oh, but but from here. your reaction, a, a nice warm ale is not enjoyed over there. No, absolutely it is. IPAs are very big over here. No, you're still usually chilled, if I'm honest. Yeah, still usually chilled, partially because of the climate. I mean, you you more sure. often than not want to drink to cool you down than to warm you up. Um, but I, uh, so I've become a, a recent fan of locally brewed IPAs um, and just a whole host of different flavors. And I find them a bit more hearty, I think is the word. And that's something I've got into since visiting Ireland, oddly, um, on, you know, one of my, recent trips before the pandemic um visited ireland visited the guinness factory and really actually got into guinness for the first time 
what? Why are we talking about drinking? I, I don't know. <laughs> but but Guinness is what I say. It's because if you, if you're having a drink, you should have something to fill your stomach as well. Well, Guinness does both, <laughs> so <laughs> you can go hard on Guinness. Anyway, we're totally off topic now, and it gives you your your, your daily iron intake as well. So I'm, I'm yes, all in for Guinness. Right. But yeah, no, we're talking about it because we're talking about arcade bars. So there is a link there. Yeah, fair enough. And, yeah, um, fair enough. I think we'd be interested to hear everyone else's thoughts on on this. Have you been to an arcade bar? Have you been to the one we've talked about in particular or those that Chris mentioned down in Australia? If you head over to our subreddit and, and look up this story submitted by Paul, leave a comment on it and uh, we will read them with interest and we'd love to hear any recommendations that you have as well for arcade bars that we should visit or check out. Um, I'd love now to, as as the world slowly returns to normal, I'd love to get a chance to check some of them out um, and try a nice room temperature beer while Chris has a cold beer with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Neil, contrary to popular belief, I have actually played quite a few games and even now still play. Uh-huh. Um, it's just that we've not talked about those specific games or genres. That's been the problem. And I'm not going to force the direction of an episode just to vindicate myself. Um, but what I'm really enjoying at the moment, and I have mentioned these in brief um, in previous episodes, is jumping on board with high score challenges. And it, this not only gives me a chance um, and a targeted reason to play games from my past, but also um, it opens me up to games that I've not played much in the past or perhaps not even played them at all. Why do I bring this up now? Well, I've found that those challenges also give me a good opportunity to either record the gameplay or in some cases even live stream, which isn't something I do often, but mm-hmm. these give me a good opportunity to do that in a fun way. And I just do it for the fun. You know, I'm not doing it for the clicks or the likes. I just think it's fun to share the experience, especially... If it's a game, I think I can win the challenge on, Neil. So we're not talking about skid marks here. Um, But, (laughs) you know, if I really think I'm in with a shot at the title, then sharing that with other people, either via pre-recorded or especially live, is that's just fun to me. And I can now understand why people get into doing that. Um, Because when you're really, you know, chasing a score, the adrenaline kicks in, the banter kicks in. Oddly, I find talking random banter to people whilst trying to hit a high score actually helps me zone out and we've we've talked about that zoning out you know Mm. phenomena before and my mind is on the banter and suddenly i realize i'm close to that high score that i'm trying to achieve which is fantastic um but i know when you originally set up your channel neil you know you you originally intended to do some flight sim videos Are you one for recording or even streaming your gameplay? Is that something you've actually managed to get down and, and do recently? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I did I did do some very early flight sim videos, but I haven't done one for like years and years and years. And it's almost becoming a, an in-joke now that I'm going to do a flight sim video one day, but it's nice. just not happening. <laughs> um, I think the closest I got was uh, I had a really old still sealed copy of Microsoft Flight Simulator. I think it's like the first version when it switched over to Microsoft. And uh, I, I started researching, writing a script for it. And then that very next day, LGR did his early release on Patreon for exactly the same game. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to go oh. up against LGR on this. So I'll just put that to one side. And that's that that never happened. So um I don't know when I'll next make a video about flight sims. I've still got my fingers crossed that the new micro pros will bring out their VR version of B17 
because that's a game that I loved so much back in the day that I would go so far as if they nail this game to to buy an uprated VR headset and everything. I will I will buy the I will build a recreated B17 in the cave just to play this game <laughs> in VR. This is how much I want this game. And they've gone quiet for for over a year now on the development of it. They just sort of teased us and then went quiet. So please Microprose mm. make this game happen. I will be your biggest supporter for this game. Anyway, <laughs> my own wishes and desires aside from Microprose, um I actually find that when I play a game, if I'm properly playing a game, I, I'm the opposite to you. I find it quite difficult to chat to people. Uh, I really yeah. need to, I, I can zone out, but normally I'll, I'll zone out to some music or something like that. Chatting, I'm, I'm more having to concentrate on the chat. I can't just sort of switch off and do it, I guess, without thinking. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I find that quite difficult. So streaming, um, I do a monthly stream and that tends to be about a topic. So we did one just last night where the topic was my first upgrade. And actually you submitted a video about your 512k RAM upgrade for your Amiga, which gave you a massive difference on, on a flight sim F18. Um, so you, you <laughs> explained noise. to us how by having that extra <laughs> RAM, it added a bong when the game loaded, it goes bong and then the music plays. Um, yeah. And then if you turn the engines off while you're flying, you hear wind noise. And those were the two. Well worth the, the money, Neil. The only two things well that, that RAM upgrade gave you. <laughs> but I bet you loved it at the time. I bet you turned your engines I did. off just, just to listen to that. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I like when I stream, I like to have something like that, a topic where people have submitted videos. And I guess it's almost like Neil React. I like to react mm. to things other people are doing and talk about news and chat about what's happening in the cave rather than just me, me sat staring at a screen playing a game because I know I'm I, I, either I'm playing the game or I'm having a conversation. If I try and mm. do both at once, I'm going to be having a, a rubbish conversation and I'm going to be playing the game badly. <laughs> That's just how it works yeah. for me. So I'm probably more yeah. one for recording when I want to get a message across and tell a story. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. The bizarre thing about all of this, including even what we're spending our time doing now, when I first caught my boys watching YouTube videos of grown men play computer games, I literally said to them, what are you doing with your time? If you're into that game, you could be playing the game. Why are you watching somebody <laughs> yeah. else play the game? And yet here we are. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, it would seem that all this YouTubing and Twitch streaming is actually way behind the eight ball anyway, Neil, because, um, you know, I do want to say here this, by the way, this isn't an Amiga story. I just <laughs> I just want to put that in here right now. It just happens to have an Amiga in it. OK, um, but it's more about the footage. So just trust me on this one. So on, on some some of the Facebook groups, I mean, I've been seeing posts by a guy called Tony, Tony with an I. Everybody seems to be called Tony these days. So this is a different <laughs> Tony to Tony's we've mentioned previously. And he's been posting on these Facebook groups links to his videos on his channel of Amiga gameplay footage. Now, look, that's nothing new. You know, everybody's doing it these days and it's a bit of a saturated market. But a couple caught my eye because the post stated, and I quote directly from his Supercars 2 video here, we recorded it on our VHS back in 1996 as a game tape to show the world but we could only show a small knit of friends. Now with live streaming, internet and YouTube, 30 years later, we can show it to the world. So this guy and his brother, so this guy, Tony, and his brother, who is yet to be named, I think, 
were recording gameplay from their Amiga directly onto VHS all the way back then in 1996. And it's only now that they can actually realize their dream in showing it to the world. And I, I do think this is genuine. I mean, you could easily, with today's technology, you could easily fake this, but the footage looks like it's you know, been recaptured for VHS. I can certainly put it that way. And the sound, a very distinct sort of whistle over the top of the audio coming out of the Amiga was the sort of thing that you would typically get typically get back then when you would try to do this kind of thing. So is this something you did back in the day, Neil? You know, if so, what was the earliest game you think you recorded? Well, um, if you think back to when we had VHS players, for my family, certainly, a VHS was not a cheap commodity. And, and, um, a tape was not a cheap consumable, if you like. We only had a limited number of tapes that we would uh, record over with, uh, you know, again and again and again. We weren't constantly going out and buying new blank tapes. So what was recorded was always overwritten for the next thing that we needed to watch. So um, in answer to your question, yes, I do remember doing it vaguely. Um, I think it was when we had the computer down on Big Telly in the lounge, which was where the VHS was. And of course, uh, this was the 80s, so we had that great big built-into-the-wall kind of fireplace with the gas fire, which turned into a <laughs> television stand, you know, all integrated. Um, did you yeah. have one of those? Yeah, you know what I mean? No, we we, we had separate, but I know exactly what you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, sort of Only come from that period. Yeah, a great yeah. big slab of wood <laughs> that the, you know, dark wood that the telly sat on, and then another hole underneath it for the VHS player. And yeah. Um, yeah. I remember we had the the computer set up down there and I think we were playing kickoff two and just out of interest, I hit record to see if it worked, played it back and was like, oh, wow, it can actually record the computer. Of course it could, you know, the, the leads were going through the VHS player, but it, it blew my mind that you could do that. So I remember recording a couple of matches, but by the next day that would have been overwritten by, you know, whatever EastEnders, whatever else my family wanted to record. And I don't yeah, remember yeah. having the desire to go back and do it again. So it's great that some people out there never overwrote those tapes and kept hold of them. There was a channel now, was it My Life in Gaming, that had a lot of old VHS tapes about not just, it wasn't the recording of games through the VHS player, but just from camcorders of them opening their Christmas Ooh. present when they got a Super Nintendo or I think it was nice. my life in gaming. It might have been a different channel. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong and we can we can put a mm. comment in. So it was really cool to see that side of things, the, the camcorder reactions to a Mega Drive arriving on Christmas Day at the time, the packing games that they took out, the, the reaction when they first loaded a game on it. That was great. But likewise, it's great to see actual gameplay recorded on a VHS on authentic hardware mm. at the time. Um, it's something that we could still do today. I've got a VHS player. I could wire it up. I could press record and put a system through it. But there is something a little bit magical about knowing that it was recorded back at, at that specific time, I think. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah, I think, yeah, like you say, we could easily do it now. I've got a um, VHS DVD and CRT set up over in the corner. Um, but yeah, I don't see, unless I was going for a sp specific look, it's not the same as unearthing, which is what I see this as, unearthing footage from, from way back when. Um, I do remember... Uh, did I record game footage? I'm sure I probably gave it a go just because I was always into plugging things into other things to see what I could do. And maybe I did it as a test. But I, I do remember specifically hooking up my Amiga to my VHS. And when I did it, it was via RF. It wasn't even via composite. Mm -hmm. And it was for one of my GCSE projects, um, a designer communication um, project that I had to do. 
And so one that I did, it was just in D-Paint, and it was to do with how color changes your perception of a room size. So I just, using single point perspective, I'd drawn a room, a kitchen in D-Paint, and they just change colors. And I recorded that. But because I only had the you know the one meg A five hundred, you couldn't really do that many frames of animation, if any at all. So what I would have to do, and of course, as you'd know, if you record on a VHS and then press pause and then let it continue, it tends to sort of roll back a few frames before it right. continues. <laughs> so what I had to do was basically allow a bit of padding in my recording. So I would record, say, for ten seconds, one room color, and then change the colors, and then hit record again. For another 10 to 20 seconds and then did that through several, several color variations and then i did another thing we had to write up a concept for a, for a computer game so we didn't actually have to create a computer game but we had to do a concept a write-up of what the computer game would be and um uh, some concept art and so i decided it wasn't in the brief but i decided to do a, an opening animation for my computer game i loved gunship at the time gunship 2000 had come out at this point so it was the original gunship on the amiga and i thought it would be great to do an alternative version with a hind helicopter so a hind d mm -hmm. um, from the sort of soviet side and i thought that would be great so i wrote up you know how i would somehow make this compatible with the original so that you could play head to head how you'd do that if the original wasn't made with rs232 from the get-go i don't know but it, it didn't matter it was a gcse project and i did this opening animation it wasn't very good by the way don't get too excited but i, I recorded that and then i submitted it and now looking back i realized that while you think that would get you extra marks the examiner is just going who the heck has sent in a vhs tape and what am i meant to do with this all they want <laughs> is a is a is a printed piece of paper that they can read and check off against their rubric to say whether or not i've got a c or a d oh, you know, yeah that's that's always what make want. your assessor's anyway. life as easy as possible <laughs> yes yeah, that's what i've learned now i didn't know it back then the the weirdest thing and this is really bizarre um i and i don't know why i did it but this would have been back in 1981 or 1982. And I remember where I did it. It was out in our conservatory at the end of my time with our Philips G7000, just before it stopped working. I was playing a game called Satellite Attack. And for whatever reason, I sat our tape recorder down next to me and I pressed record and I played the game. This is not even video. This is just audio, Neil. Right. And I pressed record and I played the game, and of course it captured the game noises and whatever I was saying. I can't remember what I was saying. Was I talking, you know, banter? I don't know. And then I played it back, and what I did was I rewound it, and I started the game again. And I remember this was like a complete sort of discovery, a complete fluke. I played it, and there's a certain thing that happens in Satellite Attack, a bit like in Space Invaders, where you get the mothership coming along the top for extra points. Yeah, so the audio changes at that point. It's a timed event. Ah. so by pressing play on the audio cassette that i'd recorded and then starting the game obviously the game's a little bit behind i could predict when the bonus ship came out ah. yeah. <laughs> because i could hear the change in audio before it actually occurred in the game complete fluke but anyway yeah so that's probably my earliest example of recording game footage even though it wasn't video it was just just audio so anyway do you, have, you think do this you is a new niche do you Good. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, do you ever wish you still had that recording? Wouldn't it be fun to have some recordings yeah. of you as, as a kid just chatting rubbish, chatting away? I'd love to hear yeah. myself um, and my friends just having a, a you know, a, a chat, like like the listening project um, audio that you get from the BBC sometimes where they just chat to everyday normal people. I'd love to hear yeah. a, an old conversation with my mates. 
in front of a, a yeah, an fantastic, it? back in the day yeah yeah. Anyway, sorry. Bizarrely, and this is, is very on topic, but me and my sister, again, just with the audio tape recorder, used to do like a pretend radio show and we'd just talk to each oh, other. Oh, we all and, did know. that. Yeah, I was always oh, the weatherman fantastic. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> tape recorders, they were great, weren't they? Anyway, no, but yeah, what I was about to ask you was, do you think this is a new niche? I mean, obviously, we're all into unearthing old computer games and playing them and talking about them or old systems. But is this sort of a sub-niche of unearthing actual video like you say, I've, I've genuine peak of interest in a YouTube channel that shows people unboxing from original footage, you know, their Christmas present, their Super Nintendo, their Amiga, or whatever it was they got for Christmas that year. That would be fantastic footage to look back at. Yeah, that would be. I mean, it's difficult, really, with gameplay footage because it's it's mm. still easy to fire up a game through an emulator and see the gameplay. Um, so you're not really missing out on that, but... If it's a game that's that's rarer or um, if it's, for example, if we move away from capturing of gameplay footage but stick to VHS tapes, recently I captured um, a promotional VHS that came with the Rise of the Robots arcade game, the, the promo pack for oh, the yeah. arcade game, that was never released. I that, yeah. So I thought it was quite mm. nice to capture that and share it. Awful. It's got this Brian May soundtrack, and as soon as I uploaded it, Brian May's company put on a claim and put adverts all <laughs> over it to take the royalties for it. Um, not that that bothers me. It only bothers me because it puts adverts all over the damn thing uh, for viewers. <laughs> but um, I thought that was worth capturing. And also, I've got a lot of VHS tapes that people have sent me over the years that were cover VHS tapes that came on game magazines. So they have early previews oh. of games. And sometimes mm. in these previews, they'll be based on beta versions that they just want to show enough to get people excited about. But sometimes you can notice differences between that and the actual retail version that came out. And it's nice to see how games have developed in that way. So I like those. Um, yeah, if you've got tapes of gameplay that you recorded back in the day, well, why not? Stick it up on YouTube for people to enjoy, preserve it before the uh, the tape dies. You might as well. You yeah. never know. There might be something on there that that interests people. Um, hmm. But I'm not. I, I can't say I'm that interested in all day, every day, just watching. I, I'm not one for watching a, the full playthrough of a game. Um, I know no, there's a lot of that no. on YouTube. Sometimes I'll dip in yeah. if I need to know how to get past a thing or I need to know, learn a tactic. But I don't really sit and watch the whole thing when there's a two-hour playthrough of a game. Um, but yeah, yeah, each, no, each to their own. Yeah, I think I think what I'd be interested, I mean, and the one that I've unearthed here is, is interesting, but what I'd be more interested in is if it was not so much a gameplay capture, say Amiga straight into VHS, but if it was a, you know, a camcorder that showed them as kids and the scenario, because I find in that kind of imagery, there's so many nostalgia hits in terms of the furniture, the wallpaper, yeah. the pictures on the wall. That So if it was a sort of a more of a, let's call it a third person, point of view of uh, that gameplay i think that could be quite interesting but anyway look tony's channel i think it's a bit of a, a newish one by the looks of it it's called amiga retro world and he has just under 100 subs at the moment but it's a really nice collection of both these vhs recordings from back in the day including his animated show reel so it appears for a time he was a bit of a freelancer doing graphics using his a1200 but also he's done some more recent captures, always played on original hardware from what I can see. So if that's your thing, go and check it out. On now to our community question of the week. We were talking about Lego last week and the Atari 2600 Lego, which has been released or is going to be released. 
And it prompted the question, which system would you like to see LEGO recreate in brick form next? Console or computer, what special features would you have included? Would you want it full size or would you shrink it down as a kind of LEGO mini? If a game character was included with it in some way, like Mario on the NES, which character would you choose? Um, so uh, we've got a message here from Duncan, producer Duncan. He, he likes to share his thoughts sometimes, and uh, he shared here that the PlayStation 2 popped into his mind. He said, I realize that this would be a black box, but there are some splashes of color in there. You know, you've got that nice sort of blue splash in the PS2, haven't you? Um, you could have it vertical. Mm. You could have that, you know, the official stand that allowed you to stand up vertically. However, a better idea quickly followed, he says. And that would be a large-scale Lego model of the ships from Wipeout. That's a great oh, yes. idea. Oh, that yeah. A idea? yeah. I'd buy Instead that. Of the systems, I'd buy that. Yeah. The ships from yeah, Wipeout. Yeah, the game elements. Um, mm, I'm what sure we can think of... F-Zero. Well, think of like 8-bit sprites. So you know, you could have like a Prince of Persia set. But it's like yeah. the 8-bit sprite. Rather than trying to look realistic and modern, it's just based on the sprite set. That sort of thing. Yeah. That would be a good fun. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, that would yeah. be cool. Let's go. There uh, were some... Go ahead. Go on. No, there were there were some 3D printed versions of the ships from Wipeout. I've just remembered that, that were floating oh, cool. around the interwebs for a while. But yeah, yeah. Good. Right. Do you want to read out the first answer from our devoted and loyal listeners? Yep. So the first one's from Colonel Mustard, who was in the library with the candlestick. You could do a CPC four six four. It would just be, it would just be one giant Lego brick. Come on, the CPC four six four's got some charm. It's got some nice features. It's got some character. Can't, can't argue with the community, Neil. It's just one oh, giant. It's got Lego colours. Brick. It's got <laughs> greens and blues and reds in there. Oh right! How do we ban people on Reddit? Where's the ban? Where's I the, think, the I've, I've, shadow ban button? No, I've just promoted him to admin. <laughs> <laughs> right. The next answer comes from Silver Rapid. Says, "How about a Lego ZX81? It would probably be more robust than the original machine. You could build yourself a Lego 16K expansion to stick on the back with blue tack. No, nice. that would work. <laughs> just offended yeah, everyone still needs today." <laughs> still needs more blue tack even though it's lego <laughs> I, think, I think anything built out of lego would be more robust than the thing that you're building out lego is a robust thing yes it certainly is um justifying the price completely <laughs> okay so the last one from audio collapse i think that's how to pronounce that if i had to cater to my childhood memories it would be the a500 good man um, but in terms of a lego build i honestly would love it if they did a gamecube Okay. Oh, um, I still think to this day it's one of the coolest and cutest console designs around. I mean, come on, it's a cube with a handle. Yeah, I fantastic. think that's our best answer today, actually. I think that would work really well mm. in Lego. You could do it in lots of different colors. You could have kind of a flip up, flip up top to open and stash yep. something in there. I don't know what, but just, I think that would be nice. Just, just don't pick it up from the handle. That's, that's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> could see that going very wrong. So... Um, Thank you, everyone who contributed. There are, there are a huge amount of answers and conversation in this particular community question of the week. So thank you for engaging everyone. And Chris, you've got our question for this week. I do indeed. So what is the earliest recording of a game or system you ever did? How did you capture it? Was it RF into a VHS or was it a camera pointed at a screen? Why did you do it? And who did you show it to? And did they stop becoming your friends soon after you showed it to them? <laughs> um, 
even better, actually, do you still have the footage and are you ready to share it with the world? And of course, by with the world, we mean a link in our Reddit so that we can be the first ones to have a look. That would be that would be amazing. Yeah, so um, submit your answers over at our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Look for the pinned community question of the week. I'm going to be away next week, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be a show because our good friend Dave, Velociraptor Dave, is going to come and uh, keep Chris company. They are going to be recording, I think, on Friday this week, which means the community question of the week won't actually have been posted and answered just yet. So that will roll over into the next show. We will answer that, but don't be surprised that we don't answer the community question of the week in the next show just because of the timings. We want to keep the show coming to you. And thank you, everyone, as always, for listening. I fancy a game now. Chris, um, you up for it? Quick game of chess master. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.